one of the one of the great evenings I remember with Aaron and Priya was being invited to an evening where they'd uh, got to know a number of their fellow Indian friends, many of them Hindus, uh, to an evening where they uh, just say, come for a meal and we want to share with you our Christian faith. And they'd invited a, a lady that they knew who'd become, who grew up a Hindu but became a Christian to share her story and I uh, was invited to come along and I'll, I'll treasure that night. That was an exciting night and it was a reminder really how every single one of us who are members of Charlotte Chapel, uh, the Lord's brought us together to be missionaries in this city. Uh, Last weekend, we reflected on how we've had the privilege of partnering folk who've gone uh, to other nations, uh, to other places in the UK, and engaged in sort of cross-cultural missions, different types of sharing the good news. But the truth is that this week, in a sense, is also uh, Missionary Sunday. It's a reminder that we are all engaged in this wonderful task of sharing this great news about how Jesus has come to fix this broken world, deal with our sin, and offer us uh, hope, uh, offer us a relationship with God. And it's a privilege that we get to engage in this together. And so thank you for reminding me of that with that evening. I'll not forget that night and uh, every blessing upon you guys. Really, I I guess I want to ask, uh, how's your week gone as a missionary uh, if you're a member of Shark Chapel? Uh, How's it gone? What what have you done this past week that's encouraged you? Back in March, we had a great day with a guy called Richard Borgenon who encouraged us to say, look, lots of people, they're not really interested in coming to church. Oh, we know that. Uh, I mean, there's, uh, we live in a nation where supposedly 59% would identify them in a survey uh, as Christian. Uh, they would say, yeah, I'm, I'm Christian. 59% would say that in the last census. But we know that only 3 to 5% come to church. And... Um, and so really there's a great opportunity for us to engage with a large number of the population and say, uh, would you see yourself as a Christian? Well, well, yeah, I guess. Have you ever looked at the Bible? Would you be interested in looking at the Bible with me, reading the Bible with me? And uh, we, we were talking about this wonderful tool, the Word One-to-One, uh, which kind of lays it all out. You simply just read it with someone. And one of the really the great things that encouraged me this past week was sitting down with, a, with a, a, an international guy, a guy from Hungary, and we were reading the next section of John's Gospel together, uh, the word one-to-one. And during the conversation, he said to me, you know, I used to think Jesus was just a man. Uh, but now I know he's the Son of God. He's God come in a body. Isn't that right? I said, oh, yeah, that's, that's right. Very exciting. Uh, just through reading the Bible together. And, and you know, my, one of my goals for this next year is to see uh, 50 of you Give this a go. Ask someone and uh, start reading the Bible with them. That's, that's my hope in the, over this next year, to encourage us to, to have the confidence to go out and uh, to this 59% that say that they're Christian, but you know, 53%, 54% not going anywhere. Let's engage with them. Let's reintroduce them to what it means to be a Christian by looking the Bible together. Now, I guess we'll get various reactions to that, won't we? I mean, uh, a lot of people are just so close-minded that they won't even consider Jesus and, and Christianity. They won't, they won't even want to address it with you. That as soon as you raise it, they'll change the conversation or back away, and that's going to happen. But actually, some will be intrigued. Some will want to investigate. One of the things that I, I come across, 
and maybe you've come across it too, is I meet people and they're not angry atheists. You know, uh, they're not also got posters of Richard Dawkins uh, on their wall and they kiss him on the way out as they leave there. They're not like that. You know, they kind of see themselves as sort of, I don't know, neutral. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're not against Jesus. They're not for Jesus. They just, you know, um, they, they're like that. That's actually how most people are that I meet. I don't know how you find it, but that's, that's, that's it for me. Kind of neutral. Now, what, what should we say to, about that? You know, what, what does the Bible have to teach us uh, as Christian disciples about how you respond to that? Well, please open your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12. And you'll find that on page 978 in the Church Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, page 978. It'll really help you if, you if you don't have a Bible with you. Just find a red Bible, reach out, grab it. And, uh, and, and if you have not got enough, share it with someone next to you. It'll really help you to have these words in front of you. Matthew's Gospel chapter 12 and we're going to read from verse 38 down to 45 now we believe that uh, this is not just an ordinary book but this is uh, God speaking to us and if you want God to speak to you let's just take a little moment and talk to him and ask for his help now let's pray Father we thank you that um, we have come to see and understand that this indeed is your word to us And so we ask that now you would speak into each one of our hearts and minds, into our lives. At whatever stage we're at, Lord, we long that you would speak to us and that you would enable us to respond rightly to Jesus and that uh, we would live for him. In Christ's name, amen. Well, Matthew chapter 12 And verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. But none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. 
That is how it'll be with this wicked generation. This is God's words. You know, on the face value, it, it seems like the request. Well, what do you think of the request uh, that they they have? The verse thirty-eight. The, the Pharisees teach the law. They say to him, "Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you." Uh, it seems respectful, don't you think? They call him teacher. Um, but, you know, they know that Jesus is claiming to be much more than a teacher. And so they, they, they come up to him and they say, well, we, we'd like just a little bit more evidence, Jesus, to persuade us that you're more than a teacher. I mean, they portray themselves really as being kind of on the fence. Uh, well, you know, we, we want to engage with you, Jesus. Um, but if you are the Messiah King, uh, the one that God promised, then perhaps you could do one of those really big, special miracles for us, right here, right now in front of us. And you know, then we'd be glad to get behind you, Jesus, if you could just do that right now for us. Does that seem a reasonable request to you? Uh, have you not had people say something similar to you if you've been a Christian for many years? Uh, I've known people who say something like this, you know, if God would just do like a really um, big thing in my life that I know he was there, then I would, I would believe him. Maybe uh, if he'd heal me or if he'd wipe out my debt or if he'd do some stunning miracle uh, right now in my life, well then, you know, then maybe I'd follow Jesus. But bear in mind that as we've kind of worked through Matthew's gospel, uh, Matthew has already recorded that huge crowds were following Jesus. And, what, and why are they following him? Well, lots of reasons. But one of the reasons is that these huge crowds are drawn by the fact that they've seen him heal many people with, with various diseases and conditions. They've seen him kind of uh, heal the leper. They've seen paralyzed people walk. Uh, they've seen people uh, who come struggling with mental and spiritual torment and he freed them. They'd seen him kind of cast out evil spirits. They'd seen, they'd heard reports of him raising the dead. And so massive crowds were following. And uh, in a sense, news like this was getting out everywhere. And it's interesting, as, as Matt read to us a little bit earlier, uh, when the religious leaders came to Jesus, they didn't sort of say, well, we know these things didn't happen. No, they accepted that they did happen. Their, their question, their allegation was this. Well, you're doing it by evil powers. That's how you're doing this, Jesus. It was undeniable to them that these things were happening. The question is the source of it. They're saying, well, it's, it's evil, evil thing, evil powers that enable you to do this. Well, their request seems less reasonable when you consider that. And uh, Jesus has some very strong things he wants to say to them. He's passionate. He's passionately warning them of the danger of their passive neutrality. What they had heard already, what they'd seen already, uh, was enough evidence. And so their request for more, it wasn't. Genuine. It wasn't a genuine desire to be persuaded. It was actually a form of rejection. And so he, he passionately wants to warn them. 
You know, it's a great thing when people ask lots of questions because they're genuinely seeking the truth. That's a wonderful thing. But actually, there comes a time when uh, people keep asking questions um, because they want to avoid the conclusions of what they already know to be true. And that's the point of the parable at the end of this section in verses 43 to 45. I think it is a parable. And it's a story about the danger of attempting to be neutral. Jesus tells this story of, a, of an evil spirit that leaves a man, goes on walkabout before deciding to return to afflict this man. And what does the evil spirit find when he gets back? Well, the man is described there in, verses, in verse uh, 44 as an unoccupied house. An unoccupied house swept clean and, and put in order. And so finding this unoccupied house, the spirit gets the word out that a party is possible with his uh, evil spirit pals, and they all move in to trash the place. And here is a a story of someone who's tried to get their life straightened out, but has created a moral vacuum in their life. And instead of staying morally neutral, this person has no capacity at all to stop even worse things happening in their life and uh, we we know it's kind of a parable because what jesus says at the end at the end of verse 45 that is how it'll be with this wicked generation there's no morally neutral response when it comes to jesus they had more than enough evidence to make uh, a correct response to jesus They knew enough about his teaching, his life, and his miracles, so that um, their stubborn refusal to listen to his call to repent would leave them in a much worse situation than when they'd started. There is no neutral position when it comes to Jesus. And I think this parable actually uh, serves as a a warning to us uh, at a time where... um, atheistic secularism uh, seeks to ban Christianity from any place in our schools and in the public square. Godless humanism has no capacity to hold out against evil outside of us or within us. Um, Last Saturday, week Saturday back, there was the Solas conference up in Dundee and uh, David was making the point for all the talk of equality and freedom in our society today, we are seeing more and more draconian government snooping rules and laws as they attempt to govern a society that actually into this godless vacuum, this Christless society, uh, what has come is all sorts of darkness and addictions and hurt. The absence of Jesus in British society has not created a more loving, enriching place of human flourishing. The average 15-year-old in Britain today is more likely to have a smartphone in their pocket than a father at home. And there have been massive, significant problems related to that. The real story, I guess, behind the named person Um, act in Scotland is the government is having to step in to try and reduce the harmful effects of broken families and a dysfunctional society into this Christless, godless vacuum all sorts of troubles are now coming 
But the biggest reason that the final state is worse than at first for the generation in Jesus' day is seen in the logic of what Jesus says uh, in these verses before this parable. You know, their continual requests for more evidence about Jesus, a miraculous sign, revealed actually how morally twisted they were, Jesus says. Look at verse 39. They were a wicked and adulterous generation. Now, this is kind of... uh, Uh, Pretty straight talk, isn't it? In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, when God's people started worshipping idols, starting uh, pursuing false gods, the prophets likened that to spiritual adultery. Uh, They were two-timing God. Uh, They were breaking their covenant relationship with God and, and, and their promise of loyalty and faithfulness to God. Uh, two weeks ago, we, we, we saw this passage of Jesus talking to the Pharisees and their allegation that he was casting out evil spirits by evil powers. Now, here's the question. Here's the fundamental question that we need to think about. Do you think Jesus is evil or good? Do you think Jesus is evil or good? This is the logic of how Jesus uh, dealt with them. If he was evil, why would he destroy evil? Why would he cast out evil spirits? If he was good, then he could only be doing that by the Spirit of God. And so as they continued to oppose Jesus, where did that put them? Which side did that put them on? In the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan? He points out to them that they were doing the devil's work. They were the ones being unfaithful to God. They were the ones who were calling the good work of the Holy Spirit evil. They were the ones who were being wicked, imposing their own rules on God, that God should do signs whenever they asked for it. And against that hardened unbelief, Jesus was not interested in being some sort of circus pony, some magician who would do some little trick in front of them. Verse 39, he answered them, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. But you know, there is a sign that they should look to. Read on. But none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You want a sign? You're not going to get a sign. Your only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. All right, is that clear? What's the sign of Jonah then? I guess we need to be clear. What's the sign of Jonah? Well, uh, if you read through the Old Testament, you're going to finally come to this book of Jonah. And uh, Jonah was an Old Testament prophet, and God commissioned him to go and warn the pagan city of Nineveh that because of their sins, God was going to judge and destroy the city but if they repented that they would be saved. Now Jonah, he didn't like these pagans. He didn't actually like the idea of them being saved. And so what does he do? He gets on a boat to go in exactly the opposite direction from Nineveh. He he hated these people. He he wanted them to get it. And so he gets on a boat, heads off. And what you read in the book of Jonah is that God sends this massive storm on the sea and the, uh, the sailors kind of work out it's a supernatural thing and they kind of work out that Jonah's the problem. Jonah fesses up, yeah, it's because I'm running away from what God wants me to do. And he said, you know what? If you want to be saved, you throw me into the sea and you're going to be fine. And they, they, that 
bless them, they actually take a while to get convinced, but then they finally say, in you go. And Jonah hits the water, it gets calm, and these pagans start worshipping God. Jonah can't help himself be a witness. That's what I love about Jonah. Even when he's a really disgruntled, grumpy believer, he's still a witness. That's encouraging to some of you, isn't it? And to me, and to me, and to me. It's the ones not smiling I'm worried about. Okay, so he hits the water, what happens? Well, God's not finished with Jonah. So a, a, a huge whale gobbles him up. Uh, he goes for a little sea adventure for three days, and he gets vomited onto dry land. Now, what happened? Did, you know, um, did God kind of miraculously keep him alive in the belly of the whale? Or did he die and get resurrected as he got spat out? I don't know. But either way, it was a miraculous intervention. We know this is not the normal thing that happens if you get swallowed by a whale. And uh, the amazing thing is, is that uh, God comes to him a second time and says, Now, Jonah, I want you to go to the city of Nineveh. This time he gets the idea. There's no point in running. So off he goes. He finally goes to Nineveh. And amazingly, one of the greatest revivals probably that's ever happened, he preaches in this massive city. And uh, incredibly, everyone, all the way up to the king, believes what he says. They listen to his call for repentance. Sackcloth and ashes, they repent, and God relents, and they are saved. Uh, it's an amazing story. That's the, that's the story of Jonah. And that's the sign that they should pay attention to, Jesus says to his generation. Just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, and no one thought he would get out, it would be the same with Jesus, the Son of Man, who would spend three days in the heart of the earth. Now just think for a moment. Here is another extraordinary place where it's clear that Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen in his life. Um, The events of his crucifixion, his death, his burial, and even his resurrection were all part of God's salvation plan. The events of the whole of his life, and especially his death and resurrection, were purposeful. He came to live this perfect life and then to die in the place of sinners. And and, and in in his resurrection, he guarantees that our forgiveness, that our sins can be forgiven and we, we we are given new life, eternal life. Now, a little minor note here. Some people have picked on this and said, well, you know what? If Jesus died on Good Friday and he was raised early on Sunday morning, that's not three days. That's not three days. Well, and it helps to know, and that's why I'm sharing it with you, helps to know that in Jewish thought and idiom, the way they used to speak, three days and three nights is just saying a way of saying three days. And in Jewish thought, if something happens on part of a day, it counts as a day. So he dies on Good Friday, day one. He's buried on Saturday, day two. He's raised on Easter Sunday, or Sunday, Easter we call it now anyway, on Sunday, day three, three days. Now this is the sign of Jonah that this generation should pay attention to. Jesus says, you want more signs? It's the sign of Jonah you'll get. So we need to work work out the significance of this sign of Jonah. And there's at least two reasons given here why it is significant. Firstly, the sign of Jonah, his resurrection, is the sign that validates that Jesus is 
the Messiah King that God promised. His resurrection is the sign that validates that Jesus is the Messiah King that God had promised. They wanted another sign. They're not going to get it. But Jesus says, when you see that I'm raised from the dead, that should be enough. See, when people are asking for more signs today, more miracles, the answer really that Jesus gives here is one that we should have up our sleeve. There is no need for additional miracles above the ones that Jesus did in his life. Recorded for us in the New Testament. That's everything that you need. Now, I believe that God still intervenes in wonderful and even you know, um, miraculous ways today. Eric Metaxas, the acclaimed biographer of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, has a recent New York best-selling book entitled Miracles. And in half of the book, he actually uh, has written up um, modern-day accounts of people who believe they've experienced God's miraculous intervention. But you know, the, here's the point. You have no right to expect God to do a miracle in your life. It's not something we can demand of God, especially if we've ignored the most incredible intervention of God in human history. And what was that? Well, if we were in a church of England, this would be uh, Advent Sunday 1. Blue Peter are probably lighting the candle this week. Uh, if they still do that, I don't know. Well, this, you know, to be honest, this is the greatest intervention of God in history. God incarnating himself, uh, taking on human flesh, God being enfleshed in Jesus of Nazareth. And to look at his life, to look at his, his death and his resurrection, actually, that's all that we need, enough evidence for us to entrust our whole lives to Jesus. That's what Jesus is teaching here. That's all that we need. And if you're here as someone who's, who's checking things out, you've not put your faith in Jesus, then have you looked at the historical evidence for the resurrection? There's some great books out there. Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. There's a classic old book by Norman Anderson on the resurrection that could lay it out. Or even just read through the gospel accounts. Look at the eyewitness testimony. Many have concluded that the most rational and reasonable explanation is that Jesus was raised from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus is massively important. It's not just that someone came back from the dead. It is the, it is the theological and the spiritual significance of it. This resurrection sign of Jonah, that the Son of Man was in the earth for three days and then came up, shows that he is the promised king their saviour. The prophets in the Old Testament were there to point people back to God's word. And God's word in the Old Testament is basically pointing forward and saying, a rescue is coming, a saviour is coming. And Jesus is greater than the prophet Jonah because he's the fulfilment of all the Old Testament prophecies. King Solomon was a big cheese in the Old Testament. I mean, King David is a great king, but in some ways the glory days of Israel were under Solomon. That's when the kingdom was most extended. That's when it was wealthiest and richest. Uh, that's when people came from all over to learn from the wisdom of Solomon, like uh, the Queen of Sheba, who says it came from the ends of the earth, not New Zealand, but uh, you know, uh, probably from modern-day Yemen, which actually would have been a very long way to come on a chariot. 
Solomon was a big cheese. Um, but you know, Solomon, as a descendant of his father David, was really just someone who was pointing forward to the one, the Messiah King. And so, of course, Jesus is greater than Solomon in every way, as a revelation of God in all his wisdom. And the resurrection points to that. But the second point, and this is the most significant uh, for Jesus' warning to the religious leaders, is this. The sign of Jonah, his resurrection, is the sign that validates that Jesus is the judge. Jesus is their judge, God's appointed judge. Look at verse 41. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. His resurrection would declare that Jesus would be their judge on the final day of judgment. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen on the final day and he reveals it to them. Paul, the apostle, as he uh, addresses the Athenians, makes this point really clear between the link between his resurrection and him being the final judge. He said this to the Athenians, For God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And look at what Jesus is saying here. If you think Jesus is a great teacher, listen to what he has to teach. All people, right down through history, will be raised to stand before Jesus the judge. And in this massive courtroom of God, every person will stand there to give an account for their lives. And you know what? Our only hope on that day will not be our own achievements, that we've been great men, great women, with great moral and spiritual achievements, Uh, we won't have much to show compared to the holiness of God. Our only hope on that day is whether we've received forgiveness for our many sins. We've known his pardon for our many faults by having stood there as people who've put our trust in Jesus. And Jesus says, I know exactly what's going to happen on that day for this generation. Do you know that there will be people who stand up and they're going to condemn you? Who are they? The pagan people of Nineveh. They're going to stand up and they're going to be your accusers and they're going to condemn you. Why is that? Well, because the people of Nineveh um, just had the preaching of Jonah and they wholeheartedly repented. You've had one who is greater than Jonah and you've refused to repent. And they'll stand there and they'll condemn you, they'll judge you. And there's another pagan witness who will take the stand. It'll be the Queen of Sheba. And uh, the Queen of Sheba, who uh, no doubt was a very busy royal, as most royals are, yet made the effort to travel this long distance to just to hear God's wisdom through King Solomon. And she would stand there and act as a witness against them, for they had Jesus right in front of them. They didn't have to go on a long journey. He was right there in front of them. And yet they refused to listen to the one who was greater than King Solomon. Now as we close here this morning, do you see the impossibility of being neutral 
about Jesus. If people think, well, you know, I'm not for Jesus, I'm not against Jesus, I'm just, you know, I'm just sitting here on the fence, I'm just neutral about this all. Well, Jesus will say, you, you, that's not true. There is no neutral place. If people have never heard about Jesus, then it's great when people ask lots of questions and look at the evidence for his life, his death, and, his, and the, his resurrection. But you know what? There is a great danger, having heard and understood to keep holding off the claims of Jesus, thinking that we're perfectly safe by trying to be neutral. I'm not for him, I'm against him, I'm just not interested right now, thank you very much. That's a very dangerous place to be. Our neutrality leaves a moral vacuum which worse things will eventually fill. And if we refuse to listen to Jesus and, and refuse to repent then it means that we will stand condemned on that final day of judgment. That's what Jesus wants to warn us of today, even as he warned that generation. You know, when you read a section like this, it's very hard to remain neutral about Jesus. Uh, someone who says, I am greater than King Solomon. I'm greater than the prophet Jonah. Well, someone like that is either mad very bad or God himself don't you think if Jesus is mad or he's bad have nothing to do with Christianity don't waste your time if that's the case but if he was resurrected from the dead the sign of Jonah then he is God and the only sane response is to repent and seek his forgiveness and submit your life under him. Isn't that logical? Isn't that clear? Have you done that? As you read his life, do you think he's mad? Bad? If he's not of those, he's, he's God. Turn to him. Ask his forgiveness. He'll welcome you today. Trust him today. Let's pray.